0: Welcome to the Journo Wave podcast from the School of Journalism, Media and Communication at the University of Sheffield.
1: Welcome to episode four of the Journal Wave podcast. Yay! So for anyone who doesn't know, Journal Wave podcast is for students, staff and anyone who would like to know more about what is going on in our school. I am Jenny Ells. I'm one of the broadcast tutors uh, in the department.
0: Hello, I'm Anna Jones. I'm one of the teachers in the department as well.
2: And hi, I'm Polly Rippon and I also teach in the department. I teach media law and
0: communications. Coming up on episode four, we have... A drag queen with a doctorate. Dr Jacob Mallinson-Bird, who also goes by the name of Dina Lux, uh, came to the school here in Sheffield in November to talk about uh, drag culture. We had a really good chat about how to represent LGBT plus and queer issues if you are a journalist. So really useful if you're interested in that kind of reporting. And we've got our usual Polly section, where we look at thorny legal and ethical issues in journalism. Polly, what are we going to chat about today? We're going to be talking today about
2: the secretive world of the family courts, Mm. which have just been opened up to journalists for the first time. Lots of interesting stuff coming out of that. Jenny? We always say
1: when we're doing the podcast that we want you, Mm. when we say you, we kind of mean the students as well as the staff, to be part of the podcast. And Jack Roberts is one of our MA uh, journalism students, and he got in touch to ask to spread the gospel at cricket. Now, I have to be completely (laughs) honest here. I don't know a huge amount about the sport. And he got behind the mic to chat to former student Katya Whitney, who also is a graduate from Sheffield. She was an MA student as well. She graduated in 2022 uh, last year, and she's currently pursuing a career as a sports journalist. Mm. And it was such a good chat we're gonna break it into two parts. So we're gonna tease you with the first part in this episode and then uh, the next part where Katya kinda gets into some top tips on how to study, what was her favorite uh, subject on the course and also whether or not shorthand is worth it. So that's well <laughs> that's worth the question. Yeah. But firstly, I'm gonna hand over the mic to Jack to talk about how Katya made her way into the world of cricket.
3: How exactly did you get from uh, the Department of Journalism at Sheffield to one of the most respectable um, cricket platforms in the country?
4: I always think it kind of happened a little bit, not by accident, but it happened pretty fast um, for a number of reasons. I I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go into sport when I started at Sheffield um, and it became quite obvious throughout that that was my main interest. But I still didn't really have a thought of going in and specialising in cricket straight away because I kind of wanted to keep my options open. Um, and I ended up doing a placement at the the Cricketer, which is another cricket publication website and magazine. And through doing that, I met someone called called Michael Ruddling, who's also a who's I think he's at the Daily Mail at the minute. Who advised me to do a, a work experience placement at Wisden. So I emailed them and they offered me this work experience placement, which which I did, and it was pretty cool because you know our offices are in the Oval Cricket Ground, so any cricket fans who are journalists just come and do a week's work experience because that's pretty cool. Um, and really got on well with the people that I was working with over the course of that week and had a few articles published and I think made a good impression. I mean, they offered me a job, so it can't have been a bad impression. Um, and during that time, I also was doing other um, placements and, and internships. So I ended up doing a month at the Telegraph on the women's sports desk during the women's Euros in in, in England, which was really cool. Um, doing the Telegraph blog for like the semi-finals and that kind of stuff and during the Commonwealth Games. And I also did a scheme called the 100 Rising, which is a really good scheme for anyone who's getting into cricket journalism. Um, You get attached to one of the 100 teams um, and you do reporting for them. So I was at Northern Superchargers based in Leeds. Um, So I did that throughout the summer. And then right when that came to an end, I got quite lucky in that the person who used to do, I guess, my role kind of um, decided to leave. And we're quite a small team and in cricket journalism jobs don't come up that often so it just ended up being perfect timing and um, my now boss dm'd me and, and asked me to apply and i did and, and i got the job um so it kind of all fell into place quite nicely but it, it shows the importance of being in the right rooms and taking that work experience seriously and, and building relationships during that period because you never know where it will lead i had no thoughts when i was on work experience that i'd be able to get a job at wisdom but it just so happened that there was a job coming and I'd made a good impression. So it shows how important work experience can be, basically. I think one of the most surreal moments, actually, was when I did my job interview, I got offered the job at the end of the interview. And um, my my boss took me out on the balcony to talk about the finer details of the contract while Hashi Amla was batting underneath me in the county championship. And I was just sat there going, this is absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, it is pretty cool. And there's international cricket at sorry at the Oval too. So to be able to do that and and do the job while watching that is pretty cool.
3: Can you tell me quickly about like what happens regarding international matches? Because I was down in London on the first day of the fifth Ashes Test at the Oval and I went to a nearby pub to watch it. And obviously the ground was buzzing. So like, what happens for you when you're on the inside?
4: So Ashes Tests were pretty cool. I, I did... So I did Edge this year and I did Lords and I did the Oval. And you go into the press box, which is kind of behind the bowler's arm, so you get the best seat in the house. Um, and you you get to cover some of the best cricket you'll ever see. So you're you're with your colleagues and you're with other people in the press back and you're you're discussing like what's going on and you're writing up stuff as it's happening and you're writing longer pieces on on what it all kind of means for the game. But there's people will be doing different things, right? So people who are working for the newspapers will be working on their match reports for the end of the day or their tea time reports. Some people will be live blogging it throughout the day on The Independent or whoever it is. For us as a website, we're doing mainly reactive content. So incidents during the match that need writing up or longer analysis pieces on talking points of the day, we'll be doing that. And then during The Ashes, we also recorded daily podcast. so after the game if, if you're doing that daily podcast you'll go out um into the stands or, or down onto the grass to to record a, your initial reaction to the end of the day so there's a lot a lot of things really um and they're long days so I, I had one crazy day where I was in Edgbaston for the fifth for the fifth day of the first test which continued until about like 8 p.m at night 8 p.m in the evening and I didn't leave the press box for another couple of hours got back to London at about 1 a.m went into the office the next day to record a podcast and then got up at 4am the next day to drive up to Nottingham for the women's Ashes test. So I could do five days there. So you have these really busy times and intense times, but you get to cover Ashes cricket and you get to do something that you love and get paid for doing it. So it's it's incredible, really.
3: Is the intensity of the job worth it?
4: hundred percent. I think at times everyone can experience burnout, right? You know, I think I had a moment where I was driving at 5am up to, up to Nottingham where I was like, should I really be doing this? Um, <laughs> when you get to see the Ashes, and I was in the press box for that, and and that's really cool to, to be like an
3: I was there moment. We're here really to spread the gospel of cricket. I believe, if my facts correct, it is the second most popular sport on the planet. So just to sort of like simplify it a little bit, how would you explain someone to cricket who's almost on the outside, if you like? To
4: simplify it, I don't know if I can do that. It's such a complicated thing. It's the simplest terms, whoever scores more runs wins, right? You know, that, that's kind of how you explain it. It's about in a ball game, hit more runs than the other side, don't get out, try and have some fun. It's basically how I'd explain cricket.
3: We're recording this after the conclusion of the 50-over or 300-ball World Cup, which is which is the one-day World Cup. Australia emerged as the winners, beating India by six wickets. From an impartial perspective, did you enjoy the World Cup?
4: Is it okay if I say absolutely not? I was talking about this with some colleagues yesterday. Um, I don't think as many of us have not enjoyed cricket as much as we have during this World Cup. And that's not to put anyone off cricket. There there are several reasons why and that there weren't very many close games. Um, It was very obvious from the start because of the format who was going to qualify for the knockout games. I also don't think it helped that England were were bad, (laughs) were really bad. That was quite depressing.
3: I must admit, from an English perspective, as much as it hurts me to watch the Australia win yet another World Cup, it was quite funny watching them silence a stadium of 90,000 people.
4: Yeah, that was a wild one, to be honest. I've never heard a stadium so silent when the ball's gone for four or the ball's gone for six or there's been like an India wicket. It's, it's quite mad because, obviously whenever something happens, the crowd is supposed to go mental. And when anything negative happened for India, it was greeted with silence, yeah. death and silence. When Head did get his century, the claps were very much localised to the Australia dugout. But Travis Head was incredible. Like He had a broken hand five weeks ago, and he's just basically yeah. won Australia World Cup. So that's extraordinary. And I think when you think about journalism, like I came into Sheffield not knowing whether I wanted to go into sports journalism, news journalism, not really knowing that... One of the things I was quite nervous about going into sports was, is it all going to be match reports and, and kind of soulless stuff? But when you watch Travis Head play innings like that, or or you, you watch the hosts who are supposed to win this thing in front of their prime minister fall from grace, that's quite an interesting story from a human perspective. And telling that story and, and writing stuff about that is, it kind of feeds that need for human story arcs and, and agony and ecstasy and all that kind of stuff. Um, as well as writing news features and real life stories as well. So it just kind of shows the kind of diversity of where you can take whatever form of journalism you end up going into.
3: Well, Katya, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. Thank you for your great insight into what life was like as a Sheffield student and obviously your views on the Cricket World Cup. But it's been really great talking to you. And I'm just finally, if you want to finish, if, you have, if there's anything that you'd like to add that we've not spoken about just yet.
4: I guess just it's going to sound really cliche and really awful so feel free to cut this but yeah. it, you have a lot of fun when you're do, when you can do the course when you're doing the course and when you're doing the experiences and having fun is kind of paramount as much as it is hard work and stressful deadlines and exams and all that kind of stuff it's also really fun I really enjoyed going out and getting box, box and speaking to you know people in Sheffield and getting different perspectives on life and, and issues from different people. And, and that's really fun going to Hillsborough on a, you know, on a night where there's a big match and watching someone score an amazing goal. That's really fun. And that's really cool to cover. Um, So like just have fun, I guess, as, as awful as that sounds, just have fun.
2: You're listening to the Journey Wave podcast. That was Jack Roberts, one of our
1: MA journalism students talking to former graduate Katya Whitney about her journey into the world of sports journalism now if you want to be part of this uh podcast we would love to hear from you get in touch jack did he emailed us at Journowave at sheffield.ac.uk that's Journowave at sheffield.ac.uk and you can also hit us up on our socials as well just look for Journowave pod on x or instagram as well you're listening to the journal wave podcast with jen Anna and Polly and each episode we go behind the headlines, we go delving to talk about legal and ethical issues that have been making the news. In past episodes we've talked about uh, impartiality in times of conflict, we've talked about reporting the Russell Brand scandal and unpicking the literacy let me trial. Please head back to some of our former episodes or our past episodes to have a listen to these in greater depth but this week we're talking all about the family courts. Polly. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about how you've become involved in actually reporting the family courts.
2: The family courts deal with disputes between local authorities and families, so perhaps when a child is being being taken into care or perhaps being adopted, and they also deal with disputes between parents, so perhaps parents who have separated and who are having a, a dispute over access to their children. And until now, most of these court decisions have been made behind closed doors by judges without any public or media access. The media were allowed to attend, but they weren't allowed to report from these cases in in the past. But it's vitally important that, you know, media can report from all the different types of courts to ensure that justice is being done and that procedures are being followed. And, you know, to ensure that the public know what's going on in the courts that they actually pay for through their taxes. Why
1: has there been such secrecy around it? Why haven't the press been allowed to report?
2: In criminal courts, children under 18 uh, generally are given anonymity, whether they're a victim, a witness or a defendant. The idea being that if you're under 18, you're not an adult and you have, you know, the opportunity to um, reform and also that you're vulnerable, so you're protected in law. And in the family courts, the issue has been that all of these disputes involve children. So there was a kind of fear that reporting from these courts would identify some of the parties involved um, and until now journalists have not been able to report from these courts but this new pilot scheme which is in place at three courts in England and Wales has enabled journalists to attend hearings and report from them reporting the cases at- anonymously so the children are still anonymized um, and any details that could identify them are kept out of reporting but it does mean that we can go in there and tell some of these stories.
1: So what kind of cases do we see in those family courts?
2: So public law cases are about local authorities and parents in dispute with the local authority, so for example, Sheffield City Council, um, trying to get access to their children if the children have perhaps been taken into care, that kind of thing. Um, Private law cases, we are also now able to report from those as well. Um, And private law cases involve disputes between parents, basically mums and dads um, disagreeing over access to children, how often they should see them, whether you know, in some cases, they should be able to see their children, um, and those are the two types of cases that the family courts uh, deal with and that are a part of this pilot scheme. There are now three courts operating where journalists can go along, they can listen to the hearings, and they can ask for what's called a transparency order, and basically that's a court order made by a judge which enables some reporting of the cases. Um, and this pilot scheme is going to be extended to other family courts in the country so hopefully in future this will become a kind of uh, a bigger area of court reporting and obviously as a court reporting teacher i was interested to find out more so i went along to leeds crown court for the day um, and sat in the family court and listened to a
0: a few cases this change came from pressure from journalists right who think Court reporting should be open. It's a function of open democracy. So journalists should be there and should be able to report. What are some of the kind of some of the stories that are starting to emerge from these family courts?
2: So I mean, not just journalists. Actually, um, a lot of campaigners' families whose cases were being heard in court but were being heard in secret. And actually, they, um, you know, if they went and spoke to a journalist about their case, they could be in contempt of court themselves. Our criminal courts are open to the public, they're open to journalists and the reason is that we want to be able to ensure that they're running smoothly and we want to be able to scrutinise them. And that the argument was that that wasn't really happening in the family courts and that all these decisions were being made behind closed doors. Um, and they weren't being properly scrutinised. So journalists, um, members of the public, campaigners, um, you know, work together to try and kind of encourage
0: uh, the judiciary to open up the family courts. Mm. So I've seen a few stories appearing in the media already, people talking about, um, you know, the lengths they've had to go to, to say protect their children from abusive partners, um, or, you know, people fighting for access to their children. What's some of the most striking stories you've seen come out of this trial so far? You know,
2: obviously, this it's a new pilot, so there hasn't been lots of reporting, um, but there have been a few cases that have come out. So I think there was one um, the other week where um, a woman had, had to fight for access to her children and, and she'd actually had to spend £30,000 on court fees, um, court costs, to pay for a barrister to argue her case in court um, against her husband, who had access to the children and was actually a convicted paedophile. I went to a case in Leeds where the mother, um, she didn't come to court, she was too upset to come to court, but she'd had five children and all of them had been taken into care and she was kind of trapped in a spiral of drug taking, Um, you know in a bad relationships domestic abuse chaotic lifestyles and so every time she had a baby that baby would be taken into care and then she'd get pregnant again um, and then that baby would be taken into care and she was kind of going through this revolving cycle Um, and you know these these types of cases just are you know really in the public interest Um, but until now they've not been reported
1: and you know, what's the future for these? You know, you mentioned these are pilots. Um, if the pilots go well, will we see
2: family courts open up across the UK? I think ultimately that's the hope. Um, currently the pilot started at the beginning of this year. There were, As I said, there are three courts involved in the pilot. Those are Leeds, Cardiff and Carlisle. Um, so reporters can't go into any other family courts and report from them at present. Um, I think there is a hope that next year this will be extended to some more courts. We're not sure which ones yet or whether it will be kind of, you know, all family courts. And I think ultimately the, the aim or the, the hope is that these courts will be as accessible to journalists as um, the criminal courts and the coroner's courts. and that.
0: Potentially a really interesting avenue for graduate journalists to get into. If you're interested in people, interested in family life, that could be a, a really interesting niche that you could um, carve out in your journalism career yeah worth keeping an eye on
2: definitely and there are there are um you know there are families who have um asked the judge if they can have their anonymity lifted so that they can speak
0: out um you know about their particular cases (laughs) So every episode of Journey Wave, as well as bringing you uh, work that's being done into the school, we like to introduce you to some of the staff who work here with us. And this time it's the turn of Tim Hopkinson, who joined the department just over a year ago now. I had a chat to Tim to find out uh, what he teaches on, what his background is, and he had some really good advice for reporting local news stories.
5: Hello, I'm Tim Hopkinson. I teach on the uh, JNL 120 um, workshop strand for practical journalism, also uh, with the MA Global and MA Journalism uh, students on both workshops and supervision.
0: So you're quite new to the department, second year teaching at the university. How did you how did you get to this stage? What was your career before you started here?
5: Uh, Well I've got quite a a varied career uh, to some extent, as in um, I've had uh, a lot of different jobs mainly within uh, National World, which was Johnston Press, um, started off as a reporter working on local um, titles, then moved into sub-editing, editing, editing, um, did quite a few years in uh, design as well, editorial design, um, both print and digital, infographics, animation, that kind of uh, thing. Um, and then the last job that I had before I came to the university was as deputy editor of the Star in Sheffield, um, which I did for uh, a period of time.
0: So a lot of what we do on the sort of first year and second year, mostly, or well, throughout the course here is local news. We really encourage people to develop a patch, to get to know um, Sheffield really well, Sheffield, Doncaster, Rotherham, this kind of area, and be reporting local news stories why why do you think local news is still really important to get your head around
5: I think people are interested in what's happening in their local area um, yet we're interested in the big national and international issues uh, but ultimately what affects you on a day to day basis is what's happening in your neighbourhood what's happening in your community city wherever you live so it's really important as journalists that uh, actually we know what interests people and what affects their day-to-day lives Um, I've been supervising the uh, MA students, uh, MA journalism students, uh, both last year and I'm um, going to be this year uh, on their patchwork, so where they go out and they have to find stories about a patch um, and sometimes it can be a bit tricky when you're doing that for the first time so uh, yeah there's there's different things that, that they can do but, but really getting out into that patch and finding out what is happening in your local area.
0: So we often we even get that from students, people come and say I just don't know where to start finding stories. You've been a local news reporter and you've supervised them. Where are people finding their stories? What can they do?
5: I think obviously it's changed a lot over the years. When I started out, um, it was very much about being out in the patch. Um, So I worked my very first job was to work on a local weekly newspaper in a in a small town. So we were there. We were based there. We knew what was going on. So I think it's important actually to know the patch, to know the uh, what is happening around there, um, and to get out and to meet people. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, opportunity with social media. So uh, you know, join up. To the Facebook groups, look what's happening on Just Giving, um, on the Nextdoor or, or Twitter X, whatever it might be. Um, and uh, yeah, know the patch, I think is the really important thing. Don't just assume that news is going to come to you. But I suppose still that main thing is uh, getting out there, speaking to people, picking up the phone, talking to people. Don't just look at social media um, and, uh, and see what people are saying on there.
0: Sort of charmingly retro idea that you just talk to people and have conversations and have contacts and know them. We also encourage students here to pitch stories that they're writing on the course to places like Sheffield Star and Yorkshire Live. And we've had a lot of success of people getting stories published, which is brilliant to see, great for their portfolios. What are the, I'd say, three top tips you can give people to make make the, make sure that their kind of student journalism work attracts the attention of of, uh, publishers and editors?
5: I think the first one is to write for your audience, so um, don't just write stories that interest students or a particular uh, type of person, write write for the audience that you might know would read the Sheffield Star or or look on Yorkshire Live, Uh, so make sure that your, your stories are interesting to a wide range of people and the thing that is going to work for. Uh, the editor of the Star or, or, or whoever it might be is they know that that story is going to get a lot of hits on their website and that's only going to happen if it does appeal to people, if it makes people stop um, and and read uh, and stop and not just click onto the uh, the next website or the next story. Um second thing is to include video and pictures so think about all the things that you can include in that story video is really important uh, especially on the star I know they want video with every single story and sometimes those videos can be unrelated so if you're providing a video that is specific to your story then that really really helps and then I suppose the the third thing is um, just really let them know what your story is about so send a send a pitch to people give them a full description and tell them why they would want to use your story why that story is worthwhile reading amongst all the other emails they're going to get, uh, why should they stop and read yours?
0: And as you say, pictures, there's just no point in running a story without a picture is there? So you just cannot come back from reporting without a picture, right?
5: Right, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's sometimes one of the hardest things, especially if you say you've got uh, a story and you think, oh, there's no, no image that I could use. Um, but don't be afraid of asking people if you can take a picture of them. They can always say no, but quite often people are willing to do that or to send you a picture if you can't get one yourself. Go out if your story is about a specific area, go and take a picture for yourself. Don't rely on Google uh, Street View or, or something like that, but get your own image. Um, and yeah, it, it will really help. ARD Text im Auftrag
1: von Funk if you want to get in touch, email journal Wave at
0: sheffield.ac.uk. I also had the pleasure earlier this month of chatting to Dr. Jacob mallinson Bird. So he came into the school as part of the research seminars that are hosted here by Dr. Marie Tomlinson, who we caught up with in our last episode. So listen back to episode three if you want to hear more from her. Really interesting chat with uh, Dr. Jacob Mallinson in the Wave Cafe uh, about how we as journalists can report LGBTQ plus issues. If that's something you're interested in, really worth a listen to this. Welcome to the University of Sheffield here chatting in the Wave Cafe. What's brought you to the University today?
6: Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I've come up for two talks, one uh, for the gender and feminism module and the other for a journalism lecture that I'll be giving this afternoon. So I gave one this morning and now. On to my second, double money.
0: So, you're very welcome here. It's lovely to have guests from the the outside world coming into the Wave to meet our uh, students. Um, What are you talking to our students about today? You've got a very varied career, (laughs) it's fair to say, Um, various different professions. You're a musician, you're a performer, you're a lecturer, you're a researcher... (laughs) What are you going to be talking about to the students today?
6: Well, this afternoon I'm talking about uh, the provocatively titled Ban Drag Now talk, which was intentionally provocative, I think. Uh, kind of looking at the recent trends in the media on calls to ban drag, and obviously um, how I abhor them in, in their um, biggest sense, and then looking to see how some of the drag queens have responded to that, um, which has been not to ban drag but to ban other things to ban all sorts of things and so I've been looking at what it would mean to ban drag and what kind of positive things could come out from banning drag in what Sarah Ahmed calls a um, killjoy perspective looking at the other other side of the story I suppose and what I think emerges is often in the commercialization of drag there is a tendency to wash drag all with the same kind of brush um, if that makes sense so there's only one type of drag and often the queerer more Subversive types of drag um, that represent a large part of the queer politic uh, become even more uh, maligned.
0: I'm just going to intervene at this point to make sure. You know about this act because you you, you have your own <laughs> drag act. So can you just introduce us to your alter ego?
6: Yes, of course. So my alter ego is called Dina Lux. Dina is Jacob's daughter in the Bible. So that's where I got the name from. Um, and I, I work with, in London, uh, the collective Sing the Pink and Hot Mess, and I do my own um, drag stuff. And it's kind of 1940s burlesque, piano, finger waves, you know, pin curls, all that all that kind of stuff, yeah.
0: So, what is it that you you love about drag? Why do you feel the need to not only do drag yourself, and as you say, engage in the world, but also, you know, speak to people about why it's got yeah. cultural value?
6: Well, uh, I think what you said about needing to drag certainly is how it started out. I mean, I certainly did feel like a need to do drag. But when I was younger, it was kind of a, a very much a gender-affirming thing to do drag before it became a career avenue. And now that's career avenue. It's obviously joyful that you get to make money off doing something that's so fun. <laughs> Um, in terms of talking about it, it's been something I've always done. Like I've gone to my old school, which was an all boys boarding school in drag to talk about drag and queerness. I've done it at Standard Chartered Bank to talk about queerness there. <laughs> and I've enjoyed going into these, and my TED talk and stuff like that. And I've enjoyed going into these other places because I think that drag, because it's fun, it can teach people a lot about lots of these topics that are very sensitive for several reasons mm-hmm. nowadays. People are either scared to offend, scared they have offended, and also people are, it's very personal and mm-hmm. it's very affecting to talk about these issues. And I think that drag has a good ability of uh, allowing you to talk about serious things in a jovial way. And I'm hoping that today we can we can do that and try and get some real thoughts swirling. I
0: know there's got, <laughs> thoughts swirling, lovely. <laughs> I know there's gonna be huge interest from the students, so it's, it's brilliant to have you here because a lot of our students really care about LGBTQ yeah. issues and really care about representation and have, you know, far more than my generation, really active, engaged conversations about these issues, which is fantastic to see. So as somebody who's both a, you know, like a performer and engaged in kind of studying how these things are covered, what do you think people going into the journal industry need to know if they're writing about queer issues?
6: I think that the, the main thing I think to know is that there is no monolithic queer experience or queer issue and that to speak about queer issue is to talk about queer issues and I think that often we can uh, try and look for grand narratives that are inherently going to leave behind people who actually need help the most and I think that's one of the most important things also coming to people as they are I suppose in terms of journalism not trying to again, I guess it's kind of the same point, but not trying to impose what your pre-idea is on that, and understanding that the queer experience looks different, sounds different, is different to every different queer person. There are as many queernesses as there are queer people. Um, That, I'm sure, is daunting as a journalist, but I'm sure it's also very expansive um, and very exciting that you get to be thinking constantly and working with these people um, in a really productive way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of, the, one of the things I find quite exciting, a lot of the students are raising questions now that should be being had in newsrooms. Yeah. So I know somebody mentioned to me the other day, or well, how do I go about talking to somebody about their pronouns if I'm not sure, for yeah. example. What's your advice to somebody if you're being interviewed and you, you know, if yeah. somebody is unsure of what terminology to be using, yeah. what's your advice to them on how to navigate that?
6: I think, I think, and, and as is the, I think what most people tell you is to ask is never offensive. To ask politely is never offensive. I should, I should rephrase that. I am, so to ask someone their pronouns very, very openly, I think is very safe. If you don't feel comfortable in that, obviously using the name is is always ob- a way to obviate pronouns. Also, if you do fumble and make a mistake, which people do, uh, uh, just to apologize swiftly and move on and to understand that they don't want to think about it as much as you don't want to think about it. You know, they, it's, not, it's not an intrinsic part of identity in terms of... Um, in terms of the only part of their identity. It just allows them to be the other parts of their identity. So focus less on that part, get over that stumbling block at the beginning and then open up the, the big world of who they actually are behind this linguistic fact, I suppose.
0: And is there a story about the drag world or, uh, or your work that you wish people were paying more attention to?
6: <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. What do I wish people were paying more attention to? I think, gosh, what do I think are pay more attention to? You know what I actually do think? Uh, this is a, a, a serious quote, I suppose. is I like, wish people would pay more attention to the the sort of um, difficulties of the gig economy um, in that you will endlessly have gigs that cancel. And without contracts and 50% cancellation fees and all that kind of stuff, you end up just having these empty schedules because people cancel last minute or they don't pay you or all this kind of stuff. And it's obviously the commercialization of drag is one issue, but drag is a way people make the money. And it's how the library is produced often against this kind of more capitalist system but i think that having a very ethical mode of production there is good i know one drag uh booker i know whenever we go they always bring us like some flower. i don't know if it wears flowers yeah. every time we are <laughs> divas but they bring a little flower like a cookie you know a bath bomb whatever it is but they make you feel really appreciated mm-hmm. and often drag queens can feel like the um, cherry on top in a decorative sense yeah. <laughs> rather than the sort of filling in in that sense.
0: (laughs) So recognising the talent and paying accordingly. Well,
6: exactly. Recognising the talent when it's in front of you.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for coming here. If people are interested in your work, where can they find you?
6: They can find me at jmalinsonb on Instagram. That's J-M-A-L-L-I-N-S-O-N-B and Jacob M. Bird on twitter slash x um whichever it is thank,
0: thank you. you so much for joining us thank you very much it's been lovely you're listening to the journal wave podcast
1: before we fully sign off we're gonna let you know we're gonna have a bit of a break uh, over the christmas period and we'll be back with our next episode of journal wave podcast in february at the start of february at the start of uh, the next semester but before we go we want to tell you about another podcast which has been created by our school which is uh, the c podcast. Anna, you've been really involved in this, so do you want to just quickly tell us a little bit more about it?
0: Yeah, so the Centre for Freedom of the Media is based in the School of Journalism, Media and Communications here at the University of Sheffield, run by the head of our school Jackie Harrison, and we've just launched a new podcast where we're talking about a lot of the research that they do, so they speak to people who are campaigners or researchers all around media freedom issues, a really important topic so uh, our first episode is live if you go to the c website, so Centre for the freedom of media, you'll find a link to the podcast there. We're also on Spotify, um, so you can find us on there. And we talked to Jill Phillips, who is the uh, a, a journalist and legal advisor, and she's the incoming editor of the Journalism Legal Bible McNays. Oh, so yay. lots of interesting Ooh. stuff about her career and also about a lot of the legal threats that are facing journalism. So worth a listen if you're going to miss us in January.
1: Brilliant. Okay, so for the final time this year, ladies, let's do it. Let's do the Journal
4: do Wave. The journal
2: If you've enjoyed the JournoWave podcast, please share, support, subscribe and even give us a little review.